Down the right field line. Pretty well hit. LaVarne way. It's the right way here tonight. Yogi Berra said it's 90% mental. The other half is physical. My name is Ryan LaVarneway, Major League Catcher and Minor League Grinder. And I've spent the last 15 years playing professional baseball while evolving my mindset. I'm fascinated by optimizing that 90%. In this show, I'll talk to elite athletes and mindset coaches about what makes them tick and how they've overcome obstacles in their own careers on the way to finding success. This is Finding the Way. Hey guys, welcome to Finding the Way. I am Ryan LaVarnoy and today I'm joined by Michelle Mace Curran. She flew F-16s for 13 years in the Air Force, with the last three being as the solo pilot for the Thunderbirds. She was a major in the Air Force, has an Air Medal and an Air Force Commendation Medal. She's way cooler than I even understand, but she has been kicking butt as a speaker and an author and an inspirer of many. Michelle, I'm so excited that you have time to join me today. Thank you for joining me. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So, so you decided to leave the Air Force almost a year ago this week and start your own business as an inspirational speaker, as an author. What led to that change for you? I like that you led with that question. So I get asked all the time on social media DMs and comments, why would you possibly leave a dream job? Because people see, people put fighter pilots on a pedestal, right? You see Top Gun and you're like, that looks like the best job ever. But like you said, I did it for 13 years. Um, it's hard on your body. I think there's a lot of parallels there with professional athletes. You get beat up. I'm 35 and everything hurts. And I wanted to still be able to do <laughs> my other active hobbies when I'm you know, 50. So that was a consideration as far as the wear and tear that you get from pulling cheese. Um, but another thing was I came to the Thunderbirds because the flying looked really fun and exciting. But what I unexpectedly discovered while I was there is how much I loved being in a role where I could inspire other people. And that's one of the big missions for the Thunderbirds. It's recruiting, but it's also inspiration. And while I was on the team, I was the only woman flying for the team. So I ended up in a kind of unique position where I could really connect with girls and with young women, especially more than my male peers could. And so I just found myself in these situations where I had an opportunity to have, you know, a short conversation with someone where that one conversation could be the thing that pushed them to go chase down whatever their dream was or their goal was. And I was on the team for three years. So those conversations I had my first season, I started to get feedback by my third season where those people would reach back out to me and tell me that they actually went and did the thing and achieved the thing that they had talked to me about. And that was just so cool to feel like I played a very small role in that. And so as my time on the Thunderbirds came to an end, I knew I wouldn't really get to do that going back to a combat squadron flying a gray F-16. And so I find kind of felt pulled to find something else where I could continue to do that mission. And it came to fruition as a speaker and an author. So, so you hit two points right there that I really want to dive a little bit deeper into, if you will, of leaving a dream job that, that other people perceive as like just this unimaginably cool thing that you know people that are five years old kids look up to and when I'm I'm trying to get into some speaking myself right now and and one of the books I'm reading is that meeting planners are always looking for ideally an astronaut a rock star or an athlete and and a fighter pilot is basically an astronaut and and I'm an athlete so we kind of check two of the boxes that people just assume are cool but we've we've lived them 
And what I've noticed is that, yes, baseball was cool and I got to do what I loved every day. But even as a dream job, it has its sacrifices. It has its downsides, just like anything else. Like I had to miss every birthday party, every wedding, every birth, every death of, of friends for 15 years. If it happened over the summer, I was unavailable. And, and I took bus rides of, of 15 hours overnight and my body hurt and I, there was no other option but McDonald's at 2 a.m. at a truck stop. Can you go into a little bit of how being a fighter pilot is a dream job, but it also has the real life downsides that anything would have also? Yeah, there's so many parallels with our field and what you said. So it's cool because you're flying this awesome fighter jet. It is very exciting at first. It's very challenging as well. You get to work with extremely high caliber people, which I think honestly is the best part of the job. Um, everyone is just motivated to be there, was competitive to get there. And so they just are high performers, similar to professional athletes. And there's all of this mindset stuff and physical stuff that goes into high performance. And what comes out the other side looks really cool to the public, whether it's on a baseball field or at an air show. But what goes on behind the scenes is a lot of work. It's a grind, and that grind is not always glamorous. And the stuff you said about your schedule, I often compare the Thunderbird show schedule to being like a band on tour. Like March to November, we were gone every single weekend. We might get one weekend off that entire time. And you think about what goes on from March to November, that is the entire season. That's the entire, or sorry, the entire summer the entire time your kids are out of school. That's when everyone's weddings are, like you mentioned. You miss so much stuff. And it's easy from an outside perspective to be like, yeah, but that's the price you pay for this great reward. But you know, doing it for a long time, when you're there and it's your spouse you're missing, it's your kid's birthday you're missing, like that obviously hits home. And it, there comes a certain point, I think, in everyone's career when they're running a schedule like that, where they start to weigh the pros and cons and eventually down the road, you know, 20 years from now, your baseball career, my fighter pilot career, they aren't going to be there anymore, no matter what, like it's a young person's game in both cases, but what should still be there is your family. And so I think you start to think more about that and start to prioritize it. Yeah, exactly. When you, when you're new to it, when you're young in the career and when you're still on the rise, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Mm-mm. because it's it's your dream it's something that you've always wanted to do and you at least in my case I didn't feel like missing the weddings missing the birthday parties was a big deal because I was chasing that thing that I've always wanted to do yep and then when you start to notice that it's a sacrifice you start to notice like man I wish I could be there for my kid or I wish I could be there for my best friend when he walks down the aisle um that's maybe when you start to prioritize like maybe it's time for the next act or at least for me yeah yeah, no, exactly the same. My views on it shifted over time. And I think having a family is the biggest the biggest kind of shift of focus. Um, but yeah, your body gets beat up too. I think when I was in my like late 20s, everyone's like, oh, just wait till you hit 30. Wait till you hit 35. Like <laughs> the wheels fall off the bus. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm active. Like I'm in good shape. This is going to be fine. Oh, everything hurts now. And I am 35. And that's not even that old. And I'm like, why does everything hurt? Uh, so let's go back and double click on the other thing you talked about, which which was being able to inspire people, especially young girls as the only female solo or you were the fifth ever, right? Fifth ever solo for the Thunderbirds. So the fifth ever woman to fly 
with the team and the team has been around since 1953. So this year is the 70th anniversary. And at any given year, there's eight pilots on the team, six that fly in the demonstration. So to only have five of us is like saying you're the fifth is not sound very impressive, right? Like everyone wants to be the first. Um, But you look at the numbers and you're like, why are, are we so underrepresented? So yeah, and then as far as solo pilots, I was the second female solo um, in the team's history. That's in, that's incredible. And you've written a children's book because you, you've said that little girls need to be able to see that this is an option, that women can fly planes. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So I think when you start to say things like, I was the fifth, people are like, cool, why are we even talking about this? You weren't the first. Like, no one cares anymore. The first have all happened. Like their equality is achieved. Like, why are we talking about the all female Super Bowl flyover, for example, which recently happened? And I think having those personal interactions that I've had with kids and young women, I see it all the time that they don't have the liberty to think that anything is possible for themselves. And it might not come down to their parents, it comes down to society in general. And so if you're the person that's like, why are we still talking about this? It's probably because that message isn't for you. It's for that person that didn't see that as a possibility for them. And I realized that most of the people I was talking to weren't ever going to go on to be fighter pilots. It's just a small number or go on to be Thunderbird pilots, especially. But I think seeing someone that looks like them in doing a job that they see as very challenging, as very difficult and as male dominated opens up their eyes to what is possible for them, even if it looks completely different. Yeah, I I can relate to that. And and I'm not comparing this in any way, but when I played for Team Israel for the first time, standing on the line with with Israel on my chest and a a yarmulke on my head for the national anthem while there was schools of Jewish school children rooting for a team uh, that they, realistically, they had never seen a team of Jewish athletes where they were all Jewish before to root for. I felt the same connection to it of this means more than a baseball game today because now those kids see that this is possible. So I, yes. I totally, again, not comparing at all, but I, I understand seeing people that don't have representation and being able to represent them. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's science behind it that we are more inspired by people's messages resonate more with us if we feel like we can connect with them and that connection is usually seen through as many similarities as possible. So that could be gender, race, class, you know, religion, whatever it is. And the more of those things that align with the person that you're looking at doing this spectacular thing, the more they're able to inspire you. Wow. I I haven't seen that, that research, but that's pretty, uh, it makes sense. Um, so let's let's talk about your message now. When you're going out and speaking, you're inspiring people all over the country. You're doing hundreds of talks a year. Is that right? Like over over a hundred? Uh, it's probably like fifty. Okay. Well, well you're, don't oversell me too much. You're crushing it. You're doing a great job. And I haven't had the pleasure of seeing you talk yet, but you're also putting out newsletters that are really inspiring. And a couple of them, I love the message. A couple, two of two newsletters ago, you titled "Drinking Out of a Fire Hose." And it was when you were first becoming a pilot, you didn't have any flight time. Everyone else in your class, it seemed like had some flight time or had some basis of knowledge. And you felt like you were playing catch up even from day one. And one of my favorite parts of this newsletter is you talk about chair flying. 
and either sitting in chair with your eyes closed or, or having a poster in front of you, but you are allowing your brain to accumulate reps in an environment with no repercussions. Yep. And, and the visualization of that is such a powerful image to think of even a fighter pilot just sitting in a chair on the ground getting reps in. How important is visualization and what other skills did you learn when you were drinking out of a fire hose? Yeah, so chair flying is so huge and obviously that term is unique to, to aviation, but I think so many industries, you know, athletes included can use that technique or do use that technique of visualization. And it was most important early on until my experience started to catch up. When I went to pilot training with no flight time, that was de definitely overwhelming. And there literally weren't enough flights available in the syllabus for me to get the amount of experience that I needed. So if I hadn't taken that time, that it's, you know, it's just a form of studying really taking that time to sit in a, in a chair in a quiet room with a cockpit poster in front of me, sounding like a crazy person, just talking through radio <laughs> calls and flipping imaginary switches, like literally taking my hands and moving them where they would go in the cockpit and thinking about air speeds. And when I would do all these different things, each time I did that for my brain, it was like I was actually flying the flight. And so it was free experience as far as if I mess up, I'm not going to crash into the ground. I'm also not going to fail a flight and, you know, start down that spiral of headed towards washing out of the program. And then it also is free as far as it's not costing the Air Force any resources. And I'm able to do it on my own time, you know, on the weekends or in the evenings and so there's really no limit to how much I could use that. And so I think that was kind of my secret weapon initially was to put in a lot of focused time doing those repetitions. So when I showed up to the flight and got in the cockpit, it was I, a lot of the anxiety was gone and the stress was taken away to some extent because it was like I'd already been there and done that. And so it was free in so many ways. And that was huge. And I even did that all the way until I was a Thunderbird pilot before we would head out at a new show site where everything looks different than it did last week. You know, we flew, people take it for granted that we would fly one week over the ocean and all the elevation is sea level and it's flat. And then the next week we might be flying in Colorado where the altitude is 9,000 feet based on the temperature and everything. The jet performs differently. There's rising terrain, there's trees, all of this stuff. And so you had to take that all into consideration before you were actually in the jet seeing it real time. Well, for someone that's for someone that's never flown at all, this is this is extremely interesting to me. How different is it flying over different terrain and when you're in the sky just I it imagine I can't even imagine flying like a bird in the, in the air. Does it what does it feel like to be flying? Uh so I a lot of times I would lose the sense of kind of excitement that normally would come with something like that because it was so focused and I was doing it at, you know, a high repercussion level with flying formation and really close to the ground. But there were a few moments where I'd have the chance to kind of have this surreal moment where I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this right now. And uh, during COVID all our air shows got canceled as did most events and we kind of went from being an air show team to doing these city flyovers to inspire the country. And so we went and flew over 
all kinds of major cities in the U.S. This is early on, like April, May timeframe of 2020. And I had a lot of surreal moments there where I was working my butt off to stay in formation, flying over all of this different terrain. And then I would have this moment where I'm like, holy crap, we are flying over the JFK airport right now at 500 feet with our smoke on and there's no one else airborne. Or we're flying up the Hudson River past New York City. Or we flew right over Denver International. We flew right over the International Airport in Atlanta, which maybe to a non-pilot doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if you ever see the screens that show all of the different air traffic that's airborne at any given time, that's insanity that we were able to do that. And no one else was on the radios. There was no other traffic airborne. So I had some moments like that where you're like, this is a unique time. This will never happen again. Um, but most of the time it was honestly so focused on what's the next maneuver, what's the next parameter, what's the timing, what's the radio call that you kind of rarely had a chance to be like, oh, this is really cool. It it sounds cool. And I'm, I'm not like necessarily like a fanboy of pilots outside of watching Top Gun, which I think anybody gets juiced of up course. about that. Yeah, it's good. But I, I'm, I, I'm loving this right now so thank you for sharing that um, yeah for sure one of your other newsletters you talk about how at 500 miles per hour you really need to lean on your habits and the small things that you've built into your, to your habits there's no time to think through every single action yep. there's no time to have every single thought and that can apply to any part of your life whether you need to work out in the morning you need to you need to scratch out 20 minutes of your day to get a workout in because you got to go pick up the kids. You got to get to work. You got to do errands, pick up groceries, whatever. Talk about the importance of small habits and how you can develop new good habits when you're trying to make a positive change in your life. Yeah. So airborne for sure you had to, it was basically repetition until it became habit because you just didn't have the, I guess the useful consciousness to focus on all of the things that needed to be done. Stuff, stuff's happening so fast. But I think in your daily life, um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have read Atomic Habits by James James Clear, but that really breaks it down really nicely. And he talks about habit stacking, which I thought was like such a great little tool, like kind of a cheat code because you use working out, for example. Um, and he talks about removing barriers to the things that you want to add into your habits, like making them as easy as possible to add. And so like for me, if I'm going to work out in the morning, which is when I like to do it as well, otherwise it just tends to not happen I will lay out all of my clothes the night before for my workout and I have a garage gym and I'll often lift in there and I'll go and write on the whiteboard the night before what the workout is so at 6 30 in the morning I literally just have to change what's already laid out walk down there and I don't have to think I don't have to consider what I'm going to do every time you pause and have to think about it there's the chance for some distraction to creep in or just lack of motivation to creep in and then you end up not doing it. And with time, you, you can be a little bit less disciplined and it will still be part of your day that you just do. But I think at first you just have to be really diligent with, you know, taking away the barriers to make it super easy. So I, I do that. And then the habit stacking stuff he talks about is taking something you already do religiously, like brushing your teeth, hopefully for most people, and if it's like, I need to start taking a multivitamin, but I keep forgetting to do that, well, then pair it up with brushing your teeth. Like, I always take this, and then I brush my teeth. So he just, like, puts those two next to each other 
in your daily routine and all of a sudden they kind of become one habit and it's really easy to incorporate new things. So I've used that stuff. I can't take credit for creating it, but I definitely have used it. Well, it, it, it is a great concept and it, it makes a lot of sense because you're already doing the one thing. So let's just add something right to it and, and connect them. Uh, one more thing you talk about is when you want to try something new, how do you find the courage mm. to do it? And it's, it, this was in your last newsletter. You talk about how when you left the, the Air Force, you had a proven track record of putting in the work of being resourceful and seeking out the right people to help. Yep. And when, what are examples of other things that you've succeeded at in the past? What skills did you use? How can you use those skills to help you succeed this time? These are the questions that you're asking people to encourage them to be able to try new things in their own life and, and lean on their own experience. How, as you're inspiring people and you're going around the country talking, what other new things are people trying to, to start doing? And, and what are the objections or the obstacles that they're expressing to you that you're giving them this advice for? So I run this workshop called Going to War with Your Inner Critic. And one of the things I have people do is think of three things that they've really been wanting to go after, but that they haven't for whatever reason. And I have them write them on uh, sticky notes and stick them on a whiteboard. And so the whole group puts all of their stuff up there. So it's this really cool collage of all different colored sticky notes where you get to see the entire group's kind of like dreams just plastered up there. And a lot of them are the same. It's super cool to see all these people, often from different backgrounds, different ages, have similar things. And a lot of this stuff is like professional as far as moving up. Or a lot of people want to start their own businesses or own side hustles. They just are afraid of failing and they don't know where to start. A lot of people want to kind of reprioritize their time. And there were like some really beautiful things about like, reprioritizing time with their family and creating, you know, this dream trip together or giving back to the community or whatever it is. And I think even though those things are all very different from each other, the people that wrote them haven't done them yet because there's some sort of uncertainty there. So they either fear failing, they fear judgment from other people. They fear, you know, walking away from what's comfortable to them. You know, you're stepping into some uncertainty you have to give up something usually as far as prioritizing your time to start something new. And so I think what you're talking about with that last newsletter is that for me with speaking, I had a little bit of that imposter syndrome initially, especially it's intimidating to get in front of a large audience, especially when you're being paid. Now you have this feeling like you have to deliver even more. Yeah. The expectations. Yeah. The expectations are high. And I think I, you know, cause I have my unique background. I was able to get in front of some pretty great crowds pretty quickly. And so I felt like my experience as a speaker was a little bit behind. I was, I was punching out of my weight class for a little bit, I think. And you can feel that and it makes you nervous. It can, you know, affect your ability to perform on stage because of the nerves. And so I said that courage leads confidence and confidence is created by a proven track record. And I actually heard that on a podcast uh, by Mel Robbins, who does like a lot of great empowerment stuff. And that track record isn't there yet, right? You step into something new. I don't have a track record as a keynote speaker, but I do have a track record with a whole bunch of skills that can make me a keynote speaker or make me a good keynote speaker with a little bit of time. And so having the courage to fall back on the things you do have a proven track record on, all the things you listed, 
you know, figuring it out, finding the right people, putting in the work that gave me the confidence to step into something completely new. And so I really encourage other people to do that as well. And often just that little bit of reflection kind of gives them perspective that the answer has been there the whole time. They actually have the ability to go do this thing that they've been wanting to do forever. Yeah. That's so powerful of like, find a way to translate your confidence from one skill to, to a new skill. Like you, you learned it's there's, there's a, exercise that that I do in some of my leadership coaching also we call it the reverse roadmap of think of something that you're proud of now that five years ago you couldn't do and try to reverse engineer the milestones or the steps to get there and sometimes it's easy to forget that you took steps along the way because now it's something that you take for granted and then try to create those milestones for yourself going forward as well in your future roadmap yeah, I love that. I've heard someone say recently, like redefining impossible. Like when you say something's impossible, it sounds like a very like definitive term. It's like, yep, it's impossible. Yeah, that's, you might as well not even try. It's the fact. Like that's how it is. But I think what you're talking about is super powerful because there are a lot of things you have accomplished that before you did those things were impossible at one point or another. And so yeah. you can constantly be redefining what that is. Very nice. Um, well, I don't want to take too much of your time. I always ask all of my guests before I let you go. This last question is if you could speak to yourself when you were a kid or a little girl with big dreams or, or a little boy with big dreams, doesn't need to necessarily be a girl, but what's the best advice you could give them for someone that wants to accomplish something that might seem impossible or something that, that is, is very hard to do, uh, and not a lot of people get to do it. What would you say? I think I would try to give her perspective that kind of trials and tribulations are normal. Like every single person who finds success in something difficult has obstacles that they have to overcome along the way. And I think when I was young and a lot of kids, they see that big dream, but they don't necessarily have a good perspective that failure is kind of the name of the game. Failure is the price you pay to be successful. And so they have to realize that stuff's going to not always go their way, but it's really what they do with that failure and how they react to it and move forward with it that determines if they continue on that path or not. And I know I kind of stumbled around that for a bit as a young fighter pilot, and I could have probably used those those words early on. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much. You, you know, you talked about having the courage uh, to try something new, inspiring people that feel underrepresented, uh, using the tools in your toolkit, relying on good habits. Failure is okay. Um, anything else I missed? Well, I think we hit a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. <laughs> uh, well, Michelle Mace Curran, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, her information and her socials will be in the show notes for, so you can check her out. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm Ryan LaVarnoy with Michelle Mace Curran. This has been Finding the Way, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Finding the Way with Ryan LaVarnoy. Find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.